As we continue to look and to hear from these testimonies from our church family, that you would be encouraged in your own testimony to know that God desires to work in your life and that when he does, that uh, we are to share that and to share about what God is doing in our midst. If you would, turn in your Bibles this morning to Psalm 32. We continue on this week with our look at testimonies in Scripture, times when God in, uh, does a work of grace, does a miracle in the lives of those that follow Him, and the expression of testimony that comes out of those things. Uh, two weeks ago, we looked at Joseph, and then last week, we looked at Moses and uh, Miriam and their testimony. This week, we turn our attention to David. And David, in many ways, it's uh, not finding one testimony, but it's really trying to narrow down the testimonies of David. Uh, we see them throughout his life, and especially in the Psalms. Many of the Psalms are just expressions of David's desire for the Lord and what God has done in his life and is continuing to do in his life. And so uh, with David, in, in many ways, it's just trying to narrow down, uh, narrow it down to one testimony that he has about what God has done and what God is doing in his life. My prayer, though, is that as we continue to hear from these testimonies, whether it be Joseph or Moses and Miriam or whether it be David or whether it be your church family, that that these testimonies would be producing in you several things. That they be producing in you encouragement. Encouragement to know that God desires to work in your life, to be obedient. Encouragement to know that He is there. I pray that they're producing in you a desire to obey a challenge to follow him, to know that he has put you in this place at this time for a specific purpose. And I pray that they are challenging you to testify as well. We've seen the last couple of weeks, and we will continue to see that the natural outcome of a believer, the natural outpouring of someone that has had an experience with God is for them to testify, for them to speak of his great deeds, for them to speak of who he is and what he has done. And I pray that you, that you would see uh, in these 90-second testimonies that we've been doing, you would say, hey, I can do that. God has done worked in my life. I can do that. I can testify in that way. I pray that that would be true for you as well. This morning, then, we, uh, we come to Psalm 32. Praying those things, same things. Praying that we would be challenged this morning. Praying that we would be encouraged. Praying that we would ha desire to testify as well. So if you would, please stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word this morning. Psalm 32. We're going to read the entire psalm, starting with verse 1. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. 
through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged you, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with a bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Father, we come before you. Lord, we do thank you that you hear our prayers. We thank you that you desire for us to come to you and to ask for forgiveness, that you desire for us to come to you and ask for help and deliverance, that you desire for us to come to you and to express thankfulness and joy. Lord, that we may know you, that we may know the depths of your love for us, that we may know the desires of your heart for those that you have created. Lord, that we may be able, as we've said already, to live life and to live it in abundance. Father, we pray all of these things in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. As we come to Psalm 32 and as we read this psalm, he is communicating the joy of the forgiven. This is an exciting psalm. This isn't a psalm that's meant to be read in lamentation. This isn't a psalm that's meant to be read in sorrow or despair. This is a psalm that is meant to be read and to be sang with great excitement. Some of your commentaries will say that this is a psalm of thanksgiving, while other commentaries say that it's a psalm of confession. I would say that it's both. It is a psalm of great thanksgiving. You read the first two verses and the last two verses and you hear it. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit. Going to the end, many of the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. There is excitement, there is joy, there is thanksgiving in the testimony that David is giving. So yeah, it's, a, it's absolutely a psalm of thanksgiving. But yes, it is also a psalm of confession. Where does that thanksgiving come from? When we give thanks, it's because we have experienced something. And so the question is, what has David experienced that he's giving thanks for? And the thing that he has experienced is confession. It is forgiveness. David says, I know that I have screwed up. 
But I have also known that he forgives. And in the end, that is what this testimony is. It is a testimony of human sin. It is a testimony of a man's repentance. And it is a testimony of God's forgiveness. It's a testimony of sin in that we have all missed the mark. After all, we use that word sin, but we don't always describe it. We don't always make sure that everyone understands what's going on. Sin, the idea is of missing the mark. So imagine a bullseye or a target with a bullseye in the center, and anything that does not hit that bullseye is sin, whether it's off by a hair or whether it's off by a mile. Either way, it is missing the mark. Sin is the same. When we do not hit the sinner of God's holiness, when we do not hit the target of God's perfection, whether we miss by a hair or whether we miss by a mile, that is sin. And it brings with it consequences. It tells us that the consequence of sin is death, and not simply death of the physical body, but it is also death of the spiritual it is the separation from God but for all eternity. It is the separation of the creation us from the creator. And it is not what is intended when God began all things. So we have the testimony of sin that all of us have missed the mark. But then there is also in this in chapter 32 the testimony of repentance. Repentance just means to turn and walk a different direction, to do something different, to confess, to understand that there has been a wrong done, and then to desire to do something different. And then lastly, we see God's forgiveness, that when we come to him, that he is faithful in this manner. And so we see all three of these things. And so we're going to take some time just to break this down. What does this mean in David's life? Why is he singing of these things? What is his testimony of sin, repentance, and forgiveness? Well, it starts by understanding a little bit about David himself. He is a king in need of repentance. When you read David's story in First and Second Samuel, you'll see that David is what God even describes as a man after God's own heart. That from his early youth until his death, he is a man that desires God, that loves God, that runs after the things of God, that is obedient to God. Whether it be in the pastures tending his father's sheep, even at the risk of his own life, or whether it be the more famous story that we have from David's life, him facing that horrible giant Goliath when everyone else was afraid, when everyone else was staggering back, and David steps forward and says, no, I serve a God that is more than capable of taking care of this. Hand me that slingshot. And so we see his desire there. We see it in his respect for God's decisions. Saul is the first king of Israel, and David serves under him in, in several different capacities, actually. Saul begins to become jealous of David. He becomes paranoid. And so he actually, on multiple occasions, seeks to kill David. And yet David runs. David does not try to defend himself. He flees from Saul's presence. And 
in that flight, there are actually two times at least where David has an opportunity to kill Saul, to take care of the problem. And most of us would see that as self-defense. But David looks at it and says what? He says, no, God has made King Saul and I do not, have, do not stand in the place of God to remove Saul from that. And so he has a loyalty and a respect for the sovereignty of God and for the sovereign and for the, the position of king. We see it in his friendship with Jonathan, Saul's son, and the love that exists between the two of them, the respect that exists between the two of them. We see it in his desire to build a temple, though his hands end up not being the one to do that. It ends up being his son, Solomon, his desire for the things of God. Throughout his life, this is the direction that he's heading, that he desires to, to know God and to follow him in everything that he does. At the same time, we see an imperfect servant. David is not the Messiah. He is not the Savior. He cannot solve the problem of our sin. As good a king as David was as good of a man as David was, as good as a servant of God that David was, he made mistakes. There were times when we see flashes of his anger. There's times when we see his pride get the best of him. We see times when he doesn't do by his children as he should. He, he, he screws up parenthood and needs grace there. Maybe the most famous or infamous of David's mistakes, though, you find in 2 Samuel chapter 11. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, you have the story of David and Bathsheba. It starts this way. It says, in the spring of the year, the time when the kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rahab. But David remained at Jerusalem. Now, that last sentence there seems pretty simple, right? He remained in Jerusalem. That doesn't seem like a big deal. And yet, in the paragraph, in the context of what is happening, Scripture means for us to understand that this was a critical decision. David should have been as king with his army. He should have been commanding them. He should have been encouraging them. He should have been instructing them. And instead, David makes the decision, I'm just going to stay home. And in doing so, he misses the mark. He misses it by a hair, but he misses the mark. And what it does is it begins a domino effect of decisions that are to come after. It starts with him staying home. It, the next thing that happens, we find David on his roof. Now, remember back then that in Israel, we're not talking about a pitched roof like what we have here, but they're kind of flat roofs. Think more like a porch. So he's up. On the top of his roof, he's looking out over Jerusalem, and he sees something he should not have seen. He's in a place he should not be, and then he sees something he should not see. He sees a woman bathing. And rather than avert his eyes and look away, he gazes upon her to the point where he says, I need her now. And he sends for her. 
She's a married woman. Her husband's name is Uriah. He is a soldier in the army of David. He brings her to the palace. They have an intimate relationship where it's not clear on whether that is consensual or not. And after having used her for his lust, he sends her home. Now we've gone from one simple decision to stay home to him seeing something he should not have seen to not averting his eyes to now doing something and missing the mark in a much bigger way. But there were small steps that led to a bigger, this bigger travesty. But like Izzy this morning, David thinks, well, I can hold on to this rock. I can cover this up. I can take care of this myself. And so he sends to Joab, his commander, and says, send Uriah back home. So Uriah comes home, and David says, hey, you've been a good soldier. Um, Why don't you take a little bit of relaxation and go home to your wife, thinking that they will have relationships and that they will possibly cover up what he has done. But Uriah is a man of honor. In essence, Uriah's response is, how can I go home and enjoy myself when I should be fighting the battle? He says that which David should have said from the beginning. He says, I should be there. How can I go home when my brothers in arms are out fighting? I will not. And so he actually spends the night in the court of David. And David realizes, okay, now my plan has been destroyed. And so rather than let go of the rock at this point, rather than let go of his sin and confess what he's done at this point, he goes a step farther and he writes a letter. And in the letter, he tells the commander Joab, here's what I want you to do. I want you to put Uriah in the front. I want you to put him at the hottest place of battle. And then I want you to withdraw just a little bit so that Uriah is killed by the enemy. Make it look like an accident. Make it look like regular battle is basically what he's saying. He takes that letter, he seals it, and he puts it in the hand of Uriah. This honorable man carries his own death warrant back to the battlefield. And Joab opens it and reads it. And he follows the orders of his king. And Uriah is killed. And David takes his wife as his own and thinks that he has covered up his sin. We go on with the story and we find that Nathan the prophet comes to David and confronts him. What have you done? (laughs) And David does repent. But we find David, this imperfect servant, making one simple choice that just builds and builds and builds to the point now where he has this woman as his wife, but it is because he was in a place that he shouldn't have been, that he looked upon what he shouldn't have looked upon, that he tried to cover it up, and ultimately it leads him to commit murder. The weight of that. Can you imagine Every time he looks at Bathsheba, knowing what he has done, knowing that he killed her husband, or at least, very least, had her husband killed, knowing that he had all of this stuff, and 
praying that no one would find out, praying that no one would discover it. The weight and the guilt and the shame bearing down on him. And we know that it does because we see it in, 30, in Psalm 32. We see it where he says in verse 3, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the, the heat of the summer. Psalm 51, which it tells us expressly this was written uh, as, as Nathan confronted David, and it's the same kind of language that sin consumes. And truly, that's the, the testimony of David, this blessing of forgiveness. But the first part of it, the first part of 32 is all about that David understands that when we hold on to our sin, that it will absolutely Strip life away from us. That it will consume us. That it will burden us. That it will burn a hole through us. If we do not confess it. If we try to hide it. If we try to hold on to it. Thankfully, 32 goes on. His testimony goes on. He says, yes, I I have sinned. I have been imperfect. I have missed the mark, but I have found a way. I have found a way out. In verse 5, he says, I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. He says, yes, sin consumes, but there is a way out because God is faithful to forgive. He says, I went to him. I no longer hid what I was doing. Nathan approaches him and confronts him and says, it's you, you're the man, you're the one that has done this thing. And David could have defended himself. He could have told Nathan to go home. He could have absolutely just bulked up and said, forget about it, I'm the king, I can do whatever I want. But instead, David acknowledges, yeah, I've screwed up. I've screwed up. And he comes to God and he confesses that which he has done. And what he finds is not that God holds it against him, but rather what he finds is that God forgives. He finds forgiveness. And so his testimony of thanksgiving, his testimony of confession is Blessed is the one who confesses. Blessed is the one who finds forgiveness in the Lord. Blessed is the one who knows freedom from the guilt and the shame. Blessed. Let you sing for joy. Let your praises be heard. Those that have been forgiven. And don't wait. He changes kind of gears here in verse 6. He he begins to say, "Don't, don't wait it says, therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. Going down to verse 8, it says, I instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be, do, be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curved with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. He says, don't wait. Don't be stubborn. Don't hold on to that thing that is destroying you. 
let it go. It's interesting. He says there that to find you when you can be found, verse 6, at a time when you may be found. And then it goes on. It says, surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. David implies in these two verses that the time for confession does not continue forever. That there will be a point when calamity comes. There will be a point when the dam breaks. And in that moment, it is too late to seek forgiveness. We believe that the Bible teaches that one day, one of two things will happen to all of us. Either we will die, this body will decay and we will die, or that Christ will return and we will see him in all of his glory. But the result is the same, that whether you die or whether you, Christ comes back in your lifetime, that there will come a point that you will stand before a holy and just God. And in that moment, the rushing waters have come, the day of judgment has arrived, and there is no time for repentance then. You will be asked, what do you give, how do you give account for your life? How do you give account for all of the things you've done, for all the things that you have thought? And at that point, it is too late. At that point, it is too late to seek forgiveness. At that point, we must take upon ourselves the consequence of what we have earned. But David says, for those that find you, for those that seek you out, there's protection. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me in trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. On that day when those that have come to him and sought forgiveness have confessed of their sins and placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, when they are given a, asked to give account of their life, we will simply respond, Jesus paid it all. He paid it all. I do not have to give account because he gave account for me. Let us find him when he can be found so that we may know life. David ends with that plea. He says repentance brings life. Verse 10, many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. Repentance brings life. As you saw with Izzy, when, when we're holding on to that sin and we're carrying that heavy burden, it prevents us from doing all of these things. It prevents us from living well. Sin, how much more it binds our hands. We can find it very difficult and sometimes impossible to live the life that God has called us to live, to know the fullness of joy, to know the fullness of the freedom that he gives. And instead we live with our hands tied together, or our hand, one arm tied behind our back. David says, know repentance, know the forgiveness of the Lord so that you experience these blessings, that you experience this joy. And I would challenge you, if you sit here this morning and you have known the forgiveness of God, stop being a gloomy Gus. My goodness. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't grieve. Yes, we grieve, but we grieve as those who have hope. 
We have sorrow, but we have it as those who have hope that this isn't all there is. Let us not get carried away with the things and the news of the day. Let us remember that we have been set free and we are free indeed. Let us rejoice. Let us sing. Let us celebrate. Rather than sit and complain in despair, let us rejoice. You have been set free. You have been forgiven. The weight has been lifted. You have been declared innocent when you should have been declared guilty. You have been given heaven when you should have been given hell. Let us rejoice. Let us be excited and not hold it in. We said this last week, and I'll say it again. Your testimony of God's grace in your life, it is personal. God has forgiven you of some very exact things that you can remember in your own life, that he has come to you in a special way, in a unique way, but he never meant your testimony to be private. He meant it to be shared. And so David stands before us with his life, an open book. Can you imagine Can you imagine your life recorded the way that David's is recorded? For your greatest mistakes to be laid bare on a page for the rest of human history? But David comes before us and says, yeah, I've made mistakes. I've known the weight of guilt and shame. But I stand before you forgiven. I stand before you in joy and in grace. Maybe this morning you see yourself in David. Maybe this morning you would say, yeah, I, I know what, he ta- what he's talking about. I know guilt. I know shame. I know what he means when he says things like my bones waste away. I know what he means when he says that the hand of God is heavy upon me and my strength is dried up. I know what that means. There's something in my past that I don't want anybody to know. When you said, what would it mean for your greatest mistake to be put black and white on paper for all men to read? That is horrifying to me. That's scary stuff. Because if anybody knew what was going on in my life, if anybody knew what I had done behind closed doors, if anyone knew what I'm trying so hard to cover up, if anybody knew that, Everyone would forsake me. I would be alone. Maybe this morning you would say, I know what David's talking about. Maybe this morning you would say, yes, there is something unconfessed. There is a sin. There is an unforgiveness towards someone else. There are things in my life that are unconfessed. And I may not think about every day, every moment, but when my head hits the pillow at night, I'm reminded of them. There are things that happen during my day and it's like a sword ran through my heart. I'm reminded of those things and they are heavy. It's like I'm carrying older around. And there are parts of life that I simply cannot enjoy because I won't put it down. If that's you this morning, David 
stands before you, an imperfect servant, and says, come and see. Come and see. Come and see a God who knows everything. Psalm 139 says, if I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me shall be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as day for the darkness is as light with you. In other words, if you say to yourself, I'm just going to cover it up. I'm going to, I'm going to hide everything. Every, I'm going to keep everything a secret as long as I can. That may work with other people but it doesn't work with God. God already knows it. He already knows your worst deed. He already knows that worst thought. He already knows all the skeletons in your closet. It's all exposed before him. And for you, as I said just a moment ago, that may be a horrifying thought, but hear this. He loves you. He loves you. He desires you. Rather than pushing you away, he desires to pull you in. Imagine it this way. Can you imagine going on a first date and there's this, this girl or this guy who you really like, you think they're, they're amazing, you hope that there's a relationship there that's coming and you guys go on the first date, you're sitting around the dinner table and you begin to just lay out the most humiliating, horrifying things about who you are. Hi, my name's Brian. I'm probably the most prideful person that you've ever met in your entire life. I have done horrible things in my life. Let me, let me expose all of that to you right now. Let's just get this over with. Heavens no, that's not what we do. We go into it and we try to paint the best picture of ourselves. We try to paint the best picture of what because we want that person to accept us. We want that person to love us. We want to have a relationship with that person. person. So we want to hide all the bad things. But Christ comes to us. God comes to us and says, I know all of the bad things. I know all of the things you have done. And I still want you. I still want you to the point that I will die for you. I will take those consequences away from you. He wants all of it. Because he can deal with it. You can't. He knows everything. And that's a good thing. Come and see a God who loves the humble. God knows it all. And he still invites you. He still says, come and know me. Come and know forgiveness. Come and know my love. He he desires to draw you closer. But it's an invitation. He's not going to force it upon you. He invites you, and so it means that you've got to come to him as well. And that requires confession. It requires repentance. means we must admit we have screwed up. It means that we must say, I no longer want to go this way. I want to go this way. I follow you, not me anymore. And that's that's humbling. It's humbling to say, I've screwed up. It doesn't matter. Big thing or a small thing. It's humbling to stand before somebody else, or in this case, before the God of all the universe, and say, I've screwed up. And here's the thing. Remember, God already knows it all. We're not confessing it so that he may know it. We're confessing it because he knows that's what's good for us. We need to understand the depths of our need for forgiveness and our mistakes so that we can move on. 
And here's the thing. God loves the humble. If you will humble yourself, if you will confess before him, if you will draw, desire to draw near to him, he will draw near to you. Come and see a God who knows everything. Come and see a God who loves the humble. And come and see a God who forgives and restores. Turning to Romans chapter 5, looking at verse 6 through 11. It says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. That's us. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He took the first step towards you and me. Since therefore we have been now justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Friend, if you sit here this morning, if you sit here this morning, you say, I identify with David. I know what it means to have guilt. I know what it means to have shame. I know what it means to carry around that burden. Come and see a God who has forgiven you if you will accept it. If you will let him take it. Come and know reconciliation. Come and know a relationship with him that you were made to have. We talk about, when we talk about love, we talk about that there's a one for everybody, that perfect match. I don't know if I believe in that, but I do know this. You were made for him. Your perfect match is not a guy or a girl. It's not someone out there that you're trying to find a relationship with that you hope you have a a marriage with for 50 years or 75 years or however long. Your perfect match, your perfect relationship is with God above and that relationship will last for eternity, he promises. Come and see a God who already knows everything about you and loves you. Come and see a God who loves the humble if you will just confess. Come and see a God who forgives and restores. I pray this morning that if that is you this morning, that you will speak with him. That's all prayer is, is just talking with him. That you will come before God and just as David did, that you will say, Lord, forgive me of what I've done. Forgive me of the mistakes I've made. Please have me. And that you would know salvation today. And I pray that if you sit here and know that this morning, that you would testify. David doesn't receive forgiveness of God and walk away and say, nice to know you, that was fun. David says, let me sing it from the mountaintops. Let me testify to what God has done and who he is. And so we come back to these questions. What is your story? What has God forgiven you of? What has he freed you from? What shame and guilt has he taken away from you? Who are you telling it to? 
may not need to know every single detail. But who are you telling about the freedom that you found in Christ from guilt and shame? And who are you praying for? David testifies to the Lord. He says, this is what happens. This is what God does for us. But not everyone who has read the testimony of David has found that same salvation. It is a work of God. So who are you praying for? That God would use your testimony or the testimony of someone else and that their life would be changed. Who is it that you're praying for? Lord, save them. I'm going to ask the praise team to come back up and we're just going to have a time of response. Maybe this morning you would identify with David and you say, that's me. I understand the weight that he is talking about. I understand the sin that he's talking about. And I have missed the mark and now I carry it around with me every day. I pray this morning that you would take it to God. That you would ask him to forgive you. That you would commit to follow him. That you would know the freedom of God. If you will pray that prayer today, I promise you he is faithful. I promise you that he will carry through with his promise. This morning, if you are here and you have already experienced that and you continue to experience it, because we don't, unfortunately, salvation doesn't bring about perfect people right away. We continue to make mistakes all the time. We continue to need that, that repentance and that salvation. But this morning that you would testify, he is good. He is good. That you would rejoice this morning. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning, and Lord, we are thankful for the gospel. Lord, for the good news, Lord, that we don't have to carry around our sin and our shame and our guilt, but Lord, that we can rejoice because we know a God who is all about freedom, that we know a creator and have a relationship with you. Father, I pray for the one this morning, Lord, Lord, that this morning that they are carrying around that great weight that it is eating them alive. Something in their past. A decision that they made that at the time felt so small. But ended up being so big. Lord that this morning you would. Or that you would give them the courage. Lord to humble themselves. To come to you and ask for forgiveness. And then that they would have the courage to tell someone about it. The courage to say, I'm following him now. Father, I pray for us as believers, Lord, that we would testify to the same, to those that we come into contact with, and Lord, that our joy and our passion would be evident to all. We pray this in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. Stand with us. You can come to the altar. You can come grab me or one of our folks. But this morning, let us respond as the Lord would have.